I want you to think for just a moment what you would do. And you think about this all the time. Okay, this would be easy. Think for just a moment what you would do if you were in charge just for one day. I mean, finally, they have seen the light and they have come to you for the answers. They, they say, you know what? I don't know how we've missed it for all these years. But we need you to be in charge because you're the one who really gets it. You're the one who can do something about it. If you finally had the chance to say and do all that you've always wanted to say and do, what is it that you would say and do? Some of you would say and do sort of what Johnny Paycheck said in that old song about taking that job because you don't want to work here no more. But some of you would really fix it though, wouldn't you? I mean, you'd do it right. You'd make a difference. You'd finally help people the way that they need to be helped. And you'd do right by everybody that is, it's always been done wrong by them. If only, if only you had the position and the influence. If only. If you got Esther open, I want you to, to go to chapter 4. Esther's over in the Old Testament. Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs. So if you turn to the middle of your Bible, you probably wind up somewhere in the book of Psalms. Go to the left just a little bit. All the way through Job. We've already been through Job. We're not going to rehash Job this morning. Job's kind of depressing sometimes. We're, we're going to Esther. All right? That's where we're going to be, right before the book of Job. Here, here's what I think. I think some of us are waiting for God to get us to a particular spot to put us in a, in a position where we can finally have some influence. And, and I picture God, when we're, when we're sitting around waiting, I, I picture God staring in disbelief when we miss what's right in front of us. That's kind of the, 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 the visual I get of God. God, would you, would you please put me in position where I, I can have some influence and I can make a difference in life? That's kind of how I picture God. I, I picture him shaking his head when we wonder, what, what could we possibly do where we are? I've done the same thing. I mean, I've claimed, well, God, I don't have this influence or that. Or, I, you know, if God, if you, if you only would get me to this position, then, Lord, I would do these things that I know probably need to be done. And, and today, I, I really hope that that kind of thinking can stop. And I hope to show you how and why in Esther chapter 4. Now, let me just catch you up real quick because we're picking it up right in the middle of this book. And if you don't know anything about the story of Esther, none of it's going to make sense. The, Esther is a great Bible story. Uh, we're talking about Bible stories you thought you knew, and we're trying to figure out how, how is it that God really wants to speak through these? What, how do they point to Jesus, and what do they say to us? Esther, the story of Esther begins around the time when the Jews are just returning from exile, uh, somewhere in the, the 500s B.C., give or take. And, and so they're returning from exile, but many of them are still living in the land of Persia, which is where Esther finds herself. The king of Persia uh, dislikes his queen because she disobeys him. And so if you know the VeggieTales story, she doesn't make him a sandwich, okay? That's, that's the way that it goes. It's a little different, you know, but, but anyway, for kids, she doesn't do what he wants, okay? And so she is gone. He gets rid of her. And so there's a nationwide search for a new queen. And so all the eligible ladies are, are, are gathered together, whether they want to be or not, and here they go before the king, and Esther is chosen to be the new queen. She has a cousin who actually raised her, more like a father figure to her, a guy named Mordecai, who, who it serves the king in some capacity, and, and he finds out about a, a plot to kill the king. And so because his, his cousin is there in, in, in the palace, he goes to her and he tells her, Esther, these two guys are going to kill the king. She lets them know that the plot obviously is thwarted and Mordecai becomes a sort of hero to some degree. 
and it's written down and, and, and everybody knows about it and whatever. Well, there's a guy who becomes the right-hand man of the king. His name is Haman. And Haman hates the Jews. He hates them completely. And he especially doesn't like Mordecai because Haman, being the chief of staff for the king, expects everybody to treat him like they would the king. And so when Haman enters the room, what's everybody supposed to do? Bow. What does Mordecai not do except for the king and for his God? He doesn't bow before Haman, and so Haman is furious. He's a man of pride. He says, you're not going to do that to me. And so instead of just going after Mordecai, do you know what Haman does? He goes after all of the Jews. And he goes to the king, and he says, king, there is this whole ethnic group, this whole group of people who do not obey your laws. And you need to exterminate them. And the king, in great kingly fashion, isn't paying attention. And he says, yeah, just do whatever you want to. And he signs off by placing his ring and giving the seal and so on. And so the plot to exterminate the Jews comes to Mordecai, and he is aware of it. And that's where we pick up the story in Esther chapter 4. If you look at it in verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. That's the Jewish sign of mourning, is to do all of that. He only went as far as the king's gate, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so he could take off his sackcloth, but he didn't accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree uh, issued in Susa, ordering their destruction so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and instruct her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. So that's what's going on. Mordecai is trying to get Esther to do something about the problem that the Jews are facing. Esther, however, as we'll see, isn't sure that's what she wants to do. She's in great fear, great distress. There's mourning going on. She's confused. She tries to get Mordecai to, to, to just, hey, put on some new clothes, come and talk to me. But he's unwilling to do it. He is in great distress. And she's not really sure what's going on. And so Mordecai sends a message to her. And in that message, he's going to challenge three things about her that I think, I know in my life, need to be challenged. And I, and I believe for us as believers in Christ, as a church family, those things need to be challenged as well. Esther's going to try to make some excuses. Mordecai's going to challenge them. And then she's going to be forced to respond in a particular way. So three things he's going to challenge. I'll just let you know, since we, this is a Southern Baptist church, if you're new with us this morning, it's going to all begin in I on the first side. And then over on the other side, it's all C's. So I know some of you are trying to guess already. I mean, you're really looking like you're paying attention and really studying the script. You're just trying to guess what's on the paper. I get it. That's okay. But they're all going to be I's on one side, all going to be C's on the other side. All right? So you can kind of follow along just a little bit. All right. So the first thing that, that Mordecai is going to challenge is Esther's ignorance. Going to challenge her ignorance. She's going to claim that she doesn't know what's going on. Look at verse 9. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. 
So he challenges her ignorance. What's he doing? He's letting her know, here's what's going on. She's living in the palace. I mean, just picture it for a second. She's the queen living in the palace. She's a Jew among pagans, probably insulated from what's really happening. She doesn't know. She's living in the palace. Everything's okay. She's unaware of the plot that Haman had constructed to, to exterminate the Jews. Now, let me just tell you this, just kind of as a side note. God's people have always been the target of God's enemies. Always. And always will be. We're never going to be fully liked by the world. And we can try and we can try and we can try. But what did they do to Jesus when they didn't like him? They crucified him, right? Now, he willingly went to the cross, all part of God's plan for our redemption. But they didn't like him. But God, Scripture, if you want to know what the one story of the Old Testament really is, it's the preparation for Jesus through the people that God protects all along. That's the one stream that you see. It's all pointing to Jesus, and God protects his people all along. No matter how dark the times got, God always protected his people so that he could come into the world in the form of Jesus Christ. And so anyway, just a little side note. It's here that he'll do it again, but that, we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. So Esther is unaware of what Haman was doing, but she's also unaware of what God was doing. She's ignorant of it. And I mean ignorance in the sense she's not stupid. She just doesn't know. She doesn't know what's happening. So anyway, she's un- the reality that's all around her, and she she really doesn't see the problem initially. Her eyes have to be open to what's really going on. Now, here's here's what I think. As I look at my own life, as I look at our church, as I look at Christianity across America in general, I think that it's not just Esther's eyes that need to be open to what's happening. I think our eyes need to be open as well, because all around us is a battle that we don't see. If you want to write down the reference, just write down Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Ephesians 6, 10 to 18. Go back and look at it because Paul is writing about what's really going on that we don't see. And he talks about the spiritual battle. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes on behalf of God that our battle is not against flesh and blood, he says, but it's against the dark spiritual forces that we can't even see. Who do we normally like to try to fight against? All the people on Facebook and social media that don't agree with us, right? That's what, that's, they don't see it our way. Do you know what Paul said under, under God's inspiration? That's not our battleground. Our battleground is the spiritual world. And our eyes have to be open to that. All around us are people who need Jesus, not who need to be convinced that our way is right. They need Jesus. They're desperate. They're dying without him. And they don't even know it. And often, kind of like Esther, we act like we don't know it either. We're ignorant of the plot of Satan, of the battle that rages around us, the reality that exists. Mordecai is telling Esther to wake up, challenging her ignorance. And I think we're being challenged the same. Listen to this. There's a book by C.S. Lewis. If you want to read a great book on spiritual warfare, a creative way to kind of put it, it's called The Screwtape Letters. And C.S. Lewis, way back in the 40s and 50s, was writing, and, and, and he, he wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Here's what, here's what he wrote about spiritual warfare. This is written from Satan's perspective. So he's, it's, a, it's a work of fiction, but it's, it's, if you will, it's spiritual fiction. It, it, it has its roots in Scripture. Satan called a worldwide convention. In his opening address to his evil angels, he said, and here's what Lewis writes, we can't keep the Christians from going to church. We can't keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming an intimate, abiding relationship experience in Christ. If they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to church. Let them have their conservative lifestyles, but steal their time. 
So they can't gain that experience in Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do, Satan says to his angels. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this, shouted the angels. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds, he answered. Tempt them to spend, 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 and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade them to work for long hours, to work six to seven days a week, 10 to 12 hours a day, so they can afford their lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children. And as their family fragments, soon their home will will offer no escape from the pressures of work. Satan went on. Overstimulate their minds so that they cannot hear that still, small voice. Entice them to play music every time they drive. To keep their phones and tablets and game systems going constantly in their homes. Now, this was written in the 40s and 50s, so I put that part in. (laughs) Just so you know. Because, you know... Yeah, so they didn't have that stuff back then. Keep their phones and tablets and game systems going constantly in their homes from C.S. Lewis. And to see that every store and restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly, this will jam their minds and break their union with Christ. You know what it does? It makes us ignorant. It makes us blind to what's really going on. Why? Because we're so distracted. We're entertained, but we're distracted. And ultimately, we, because of all that stuff, we become ineffective. We don't see it, do we? You ever been like that? You ever lost a week? Where in the world did that go? A month? A year? A decade? A lifetime? Where, where, where is all the time going? Guess what? We have been so entertained and consumed and so busy doing, as, as, as C.S. Lewis wrote, the non-essential things in life that we don't see it. Often we are just ignorant. We don't see what's really going on around us. And so we're blind and ineffective and ignorant for the kingdom of God. Anyway, um, I, I see this in myself. I see this, of course, in our church. I see this in our community and in our world, that we are ignorant of the souls and situations around us. And so let me encourage you, as I encourage myself, look around. Who is it that God has put around you every single day? I mean, that dude, okay? That dude, you know who I'm talking about. That lady that you, you know, yeah, she sits right over there at work. And why is she there? Uh, who, who, what, what is it that, that the issues, what, what issues are people dealing with that things just seem to fall in your lap? You know, you're the person people come to. You ever felt like that? Some of you would say, and I'm the glue that holds everything together. By the way, just to, on my cynical side, everybody at work saying the same thing too. They all think they're the glue that holds it all together. Right. But you are, okay? But you are, really, okay? But really, what, can, what seems to fall in your lap all the time? What are the issues that keep coming to you? Are you wondering why it is? Why am I here? Why am I where I am right now? Start looking around and start praying, God, open my eyes. Draw me close to you so that I can see what you see. So he challenges first her ignorance. Secondly, he challenges her indecision. Her indecision. Look at verse 10. Esther spoke to Hothak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. Do you see what it says next? What, what, what is it? It's the death penalty. 
Only if the king extends the golden scepter will that person live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. What in the world can I do about it? I don't know what to do. She didn't think there was anything she could do. And so what is she going to do? Nothing. I can't do anything. You don't get it. I mean, really, her decision, her indecision here is based on what? Based on fear. That's legitimate fear. She could die very easily. She shows up before the king. He looks at her and says, what are you doing here? Uh, she couldn't claim ignorance on that law because she just said it. Everybody knows that you can't go before the king or you will die. It's a legitimate fear. And after all, anyway, she doesn't have any real authority. You know, it's not as if she can go and tell the king what he's going to do. She's no real authority. I can't go before the king, she says. It's against the law. Everybody knows that. There's nothing I can do. I don't, you know, what do you want me to do here? I wonder when it comes to, to, to the people and the issues around us, how, how are we similar to Esther? Kind of waffling. Well, I don't, I don't know. What am I supposed to do? I looked up some of the major causes of, of indecision, why we don't, why we aren't more decisive. Why don't we say, you know what? I know exactly what I'm going to do. Sometimes we have too many options. You know, it's like trying to figure out with people where to go to eat. Where do you want to go? I don't care. Where do you want to go? Well, I don't care. That's why I ask you. Listen, guys, I saw this the other day. Just fellas, if, if you're with your lady and she asks you, Okay, where do you want to go to eat? Number one, it's a trick. Okay, it's, it's a trick. Do not answer the question. I'm dead serious. It's a trick. Okay, don't answer the question. She says, where do you want to go to eat tonight, today, whenever? Just do this. Tell her, guess where, guess where I want to go. And then she'll say some restaurant and you'll know that's where she wants to go. So take her there. Problem solved. Okay. Just a little, little helpful advice for the fellas. Anyway, indecision sometimes comes when we have so many options. Where do you want to go? I don't know. Where do you want to go? The truth is, when we are believers in Christ, there's only one option for us, and that is to get involved and to make disciples. It is not something we can waffle on. It is commanded in Scripture. And I saw another, another reason for indecision is trying to please everyone. Trying to please everybody. Now, this is huge. I'll be honest. I mean, no, we all try to do this. And, I, and I'll say this. Unless you're like my friend Nelson Key, who has a road named after you are not popular enough to please everybody. The man, I mean, telling you. You know, I get on him about that every once in a while. I say, I don't have a road named after me. He's the most popular man in Callaway County. I don't know how you pulled that off. But listen, you're not going to please everybody, are you? It's just the way it's going to be. Eddie Cloud would tell me every once in a while, listen, Jesus Christ didn't even please everybody. Why are you trying to please everybody at Elm Grove? That's just the way it is. You're not Nelson Key. You can't do that. (laughs) You know I love you. But honestly, you know, we joke about it. But listen, nobody can please everybody. And you know what? The one person that often we forget to please is who? Is God. And God has said, here's what I want you to do. Here's why I've placed you on this earth. And that is to go and make disciples. You know what? Oh, God, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Sometimes we we have limited belief. We shrink God down to the size of our faith and we say, I don't know, God, if you can do anything in this person's life. So I guess I won't try. You realize that, that, that that dude, that that lady, God made them, that Jesus died for them, and that God and God alone can do a miracle work in their heart and change their heart and their life and their mind. And all we're to do is simply be obedient. 
Or maybe it's like Esther and you just lack purpose. God, what am I doing here? I wonder, do you find yourself sometimes scared and anxious and unwilling to rock the boat? But if we really believe what we say we believe, and that is that people need Jesus, that God uses people to reach people who need Jesus, then the decision has already been made for us. We speak up on behalf of the Lord. Finally, and thirdly, he challenges her indifference. So he challenges her ignorance, he challenges her indecision, and finally her indifference. Look at verses 13 and 14. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's house will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to the kingdom, what, for such a time as this. You ever wonder where that comes from? It's in Esther chapter 4. He told her she's not going to escape if she does nothing. She's going to get caught up in it too. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that she's going to be found out, that she's, she's Jewish, and then the king's going to kill her too? Does it simply mean that God will hold her accountable for her lack of action? I don't know. But Mordecai tells her, somehow you will not escape this. Don't think that just by claiming, well, I don't know if I can do anything, I'm not going to get involved. Don't claim that you're off the hook. It's, it seems as if she thinks, I can't do anything. I, I, I don't need to do anything. She's got a real good set of reasons for being indifferent about this. Her life's okay. Hey, I'm the queen. You know what, guys? It doesn't really affect me. Uh, it's against the laws. I told you anyway, so I'm sorry, but I'm not getting involved. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Mordecai tells her, in essence, God doesn't need you. You see what he says there? If you don't get involved, what? Deliverance will come from somewhere else. Implying that God doesn't need you. You know, God doesn't need any of us. You realize that? Where you work, where you live, where I pastor, God doesn't need any of us. He doesn't need me here. God can do and will do whatever he wants to do with whomever he chooses to do it. But, Mordecai says, even if that's true, you are still accountable to do what God's will is for you right where you are. Isn't that interesting? You've got a responsibility, Esther, an obligation to do something. But let's be honest. Sometimes... We just don't care. Isn't it true? Sometimes we just don't care. We know the person, we know the issue, but we don't care. Why? Well, it's none of my business. It's kind of uncomfortable. It might cost me something. Or maybe we don't really believe it matters, or it doesn't affect me, you know. But I think what Mordecai said to Esther, God says to us. What he meant for her to understand that she couldn't be indifferent is what is echoed throughout the scripture. In Ezekiel, we're told that if we don't shout and help people understand their need for Jesus, their blood is on our hands. We're told over in the New Testament that we are to take care of our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. Paul wrote, he said, how will people believe if they don't hear? And how will they hear without a preacher, without someone to tell them? We're often indifferent to the lives that are not like ours. They're different economically or racially or nationally. Or they're sick and they're down and out. Or they're causing their own problems. Eh, you know what? I don't want to get involved. You might say, well, I'm not doing them any harm. I'm I'm not hurting them. But do you know the story of the good Samaritan? Do you know who Jesus had it out for in that story? The people who just did no harm. Eh, I'm just going to leave you alone. I don't think Jesus meant by loving our neighbor that we can simply avoid doing harm. So anyway, Mordecai challenges all that. He informed her ignorance. He told her what was going on. He questioned her indecision. 
encouraging her to get involved. He calls out her indifference, telling her that she is there because God wants her to do something. And that's kind of uncomfortable. You're probably a little bit uncomfortable right now. At least I'm I'm a little uncomfortable with this. It kind of makes you wish I'd hurry up and get the sermon over with. What's your point? Or it makes you wonder, did I go to the right church today? I'm not so sure about this. I didn't come to church to get my toes stepped on about what I'm not doing for the kingdom of God. Now, we don't get any, any, any record of, of anything other than her next actions. But somewhere in there, when she heard the message of Mordecai and then she begins to act, somewhere in there, God works on her heart. And that's my prayer for you and my prayer for me this morning is that somewhere in here we'll stop being defensive and we'll start saying, all right, God, I don't know what you want to do through me, but whatever it is, go ahead. And somewhere in there, that's what Esther did. She took it all in. She stopped being defensive. And she opened herself up to have God change her heart and her mind toward an issue or, and a group of people she didn't think she could do anything about or that she didn't even want to do anything about. And so she responds. And first, she responded with clarity. Where once there was ignorance, now there's clarity. Look at verse 16. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, verse 15. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. Clarity. Here's what we need to do. I see the problem. I see it now. She's no longer ignorant, but she sees clearly what's happening. And she knows she has to respond in a spiritual way. So what does she do? She begins to fast, to refrain from eating or drinking so that she might seek the Lord's favor and really seek to hear from him in those moments. She sees now finally why God has made her queen, why she is where she is right then. I wonder about us. Let me encourage you with one thing on this, this position of clarity. And that is to spend time with God so that you might see a kingdom vision for wherever you are right now. God's kingdom for your school, for your home, for your team, for your workplace, for your church, for your family, for your neighborhood. How does God's kingdom need to invade those places and those people? That's the kind of vision that we need. Not just better programs here at church, but how can God's kingdom truly invade our hearts and our lives and go wherever we are? Secondly, she responded with courage. No more indecision. Now there's courage. She was once indecisive, reluctant to get involved, scared of what the consequences would be. And then look at the middle of verse 16. What did she say after telling them all to fast? Look, after that... I will go to the king even if it is against the law. Courage. She's changed her mind. Now the fear might still be there. But as, as, as John Wayne said, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid and saddling up anyway. I think John Wayne said if he didn't, he should have. That, that sounds like John Wayne. <laughs> courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is being afraid and saddling up anyway. She's scared. But she's got courage to help her act even though she's scared. It takes courage to do what's right. And sometimes it'll be against the law. It takes courage to speak up about whatever issue it is, about false spirituality, about subtle racism, about what's not right, about Jesus. It takes courage to change things, to protect someone, to go against what everyone else kind of shrugs at. That's not a big deal. It takes courage to challenge an evil authority or an evil system. It takes courage to live in obedience to God's word. 
It takes courage to let God's kingdom invade every part of you and then to take that kingdom wherever you go. It takes courage. Somewhere in there, Esther has her heart worked on and she emerges courageous in spite of her fear. And thirdly, she responded with commitment. The very end of verse 16, look at it. If I perish, I perish. Well, that's just fatalism. She, you know, no, no, no. All she's saying is, I'm going to see it through. I will not quit. She knows she's making an irrevocable decision. There's no going back. And she's going to do whatever God's will is, even if it costs her. This is not an easy commitment. Nor probably was it a preferable one. She didn't want to do that. But she made it anyway. So she's no longer passive. There's no more indifference. No longer just along for the ride. No longer thinking there's nothing she can do about the problem. No longer just complaining or worrying or even planning it out. Now she's doing something. And that's what it takes to make something happen on behalf of the Lord. Don't give up. See it through. Some of you have been praying for somebody for years. I mean years. That person in your family, that person you work with, you've been praying for them, you've been doing everything you can to show them the love of Jesus. Some of you are just getting started. And it's going to take commitment. Because listen, you can have clarity, I can see what needs to happen, I can have courage, I'm willing to do it. But without commitment and follow through, the clarity and courage will go by the wayside. It takes someone who says, I will not give up on doing what I need to do to see the kingdom of God invade that person, invade that place. Don't give up. Let me encourage you today. Do something. Don't just sit there anymore. Do something. Say something. Start something. Finish something. Follow through with the commitment. Esther really, if you look at her story, she's a preview of Jesus Christ. You know that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's on his knees before his heavenly father and he's praying. He knows what's about to happen. The mob is coming to get him and arrest him and falsely charge him and and eventually execute him on the cross. And Jesus prays, it says in the Bible, three times, and he says the same thing over and over. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup, what, pass from me. Do you know what he's he's talking about? Some people say he just doesn't want to die for the sins of the world. Ah, Jesus willingly went to the cross. There's nothing in Scripture that says otherwise. He just doesn't want to endure the physical pain. Listen, I don't believe that's totally it. You know what I think? I think Jesus knew that in those moments when the sin of the world is heaped on him and he literally becomes sin on our behalf and he takes our place on the cross. Do you know what happened? He cries out, he says, Father, why have what? Why have you forsaken me? I think that's what he didn't want to endure. That he knew that his heavenly father could not be associated with sin as if we have to turn his back on the son as the son took the sin of the world. And I think Jesus says, Lord, if it's possible, I don't want to be separated. But do you know what he says? But what? But not my will, but yours be done. I think Esther is a preview of Jesus Christ and that she says, you know what? <laughs> this is not preferable for me to endure this, but I will do it anyway. Jesus went to the cross willingly and with commitment and he stayed there when he said, I could call down 12 legions of angels and wipe all of you out, but I am here to die for the sins of the world. Esther's a preview. And you know what we're to be? a review of Jesus to have the kind of commitment that he had when he went to the cross, the kind of commitment that says, I will not give up on these people. 
And so let's go back to where we started this morning. If I were only in charge... If, if they'd only let me talk to everybody. I mean, if, if only somebody would let me fix things. I think everybody's waiting to get somewhere, wherever it is, wherever there is, that, that they think they can finally have some influence. But let me ask you this. What if you never wind up there? What if that promotion never comes? What if that opportunity is never presented to you? What if you live out your days right where you are and you never change? Nothing ever gets different. What if... If that's the case, will we do nothing for the Lord? Over in the book of James, he talks about the foolishness of, of a that we get tomorrow. And he closes in James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. If you want to write it down, I'm not going to take the time to go and read it this morning. But in verse 17, he says, he says you know, don't get caught up in just planning for the future. One day, someday, I'll do this and that. He says, whoever knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, what? Sins. And so let me encourage you, not one day, someday, but how can God use me right here, right now? How can God use me right here, right now? Not one day, someday, but what is the good that God has put in front of me to do right here, right now? And if I avoid it, I know I will be disobeying the Lord. How can God use me right here, right now? As you leave here today in just a few moments, and you go to that restaurant, you go to that home, you go wherever it is, you go to work tomorrow. Eventually, young people, you go back to school this, this fall. How can God use me right here, right now. Ask the question. Look to Jesus. He'll show you. This morning, we're going to close our time with the Lord's Supper. You've seen it sitting there. You know that's coming. What we're celebrating this morning by, by taking part in this is celebrating that the kingdom of God has come to us. That Jesus went to the cross and willingly allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for sinners just like you and me. He did something. He, he didn't just sit in heaven where he was worshipped by the angels 24-7 and just stay there. Instead, he came to earth and he did something about our situation. Apart from him, we have no hope. The Bible tells us we cannot be good enough, that only Jesus could be good enough on our behalf. And that's the only good that God accepts is the death of Jesus. And so this morning, as we take this in just a moment, what you're going to receive is a small little cracker representing the body of Jesus was broken for us. And we'll pass that out and I'll read a scripture and we'll eat that together and then you'll receive a cup that contains some juice in it representing the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'll read a scripture and we'll take that together and then we'll close with a chorus.